Father, help me go quickly. Amen. Okay, in the past couple weeks, uh, we'll pray again. We'll pray again. Uh, we've been looking at uh, sexual intimacy, if you've been with us. Uh, we've been talking about how the Bible lifts up sex, first of all, as powerful and good. That sex is powerful and it's good, and that's biblical. That is good theology for you to argue that, to say that. And, and right in the middle of scriptures, like almost, almost in the very middle, just to the right of center, sexual intimacy is compared to a raging fire with sparks flying off of it. It's so powerful that it needs commitment for it to be safe to play with. If, if you remember the line from the Song of Songs, Song of Songs is like holy of holies or king of kings. It means the greatest song of all songs. The woman says, place me as a seal upon your heart, for this kind of love is strong as death. Commit to me because the love that we have for each other is too strong otherwise. We can't let this fire get out of control. And so last week what we talked about is what happens when the fire does get out of control. How much that fire is re- of sex and sexual love and intimacy is wreaking havoc all over the world when it's not happening within the context of a loving marriage, the ways in which Billions, not millions, billions of people are enslaved, abused, and hollowed out by this fire that has gone wild in our media, in our minds, in our communities, and in our hearts, friends. I mean, truly, just a couple of seconds of attending to it, I don't have to make a case, do I? How much damage is caused by sex and sexual desire? And do, do, you might think, we'll talk more about this tonight, you might think marriage is a relic of the past. Marriage is outdated. I don't, I don't, I, we'll, we'll get into some of that tonight, some of that, not all of it probably. You might think that, but I ask you, okay, so sex outside of marriage has just done wonders for the world? People are flourishing and having an abundant life? Is the, the sex that you've had or people you've known had outside of marriage, has it really just created these wonderfully sustaining relationships? that are really helping our, our civilizations, that they're, they're helping nurture new generations grow up. The damage that this thing causes. It's so dangerous, this fire, this raging fire. It's so dangerous when it's not in the right context. In fact, that Jesus makes a single concession for divorce. And it's when that fire gets out of control. It's so dangerous that God himself allows the separation of something that he commands no one else to separate. And do you know what that is? What does God say, let no one else separate? Marriage. This conversation about sex and sexual love leads us to the doorstep of marriage. And tonight I want to take a look. And I think it'll be a sober look. I'm like really, my head is really foggy from stuck junk. And and then also, um, this is just really heavy stuff. Marriage and divorce and singleness. We're talking about that tonight a little bit too. Uh, one um, oversimplified table of contents um, about, the, about these thoughts uh, on Christian marriage goes something like this. Keely, we put that the first slide. This is, this is uh, pulled out of a commentary. I mean, a, a, yeah, commentary on marriage. This is like the table of contents. The Old Testament, marriage is good for everyone. The New Testament, marriage is good, but not for everyone. The early church, marriage is acceptable, but sex can make it sinful. If you know that, truly, there are people who like, were like, how do we stay married and never have sex except for when we want to have a kid? Because that's the only time that it's, we'll tolerate sex if we can have a kid, but otherwise, oh, right? Um, that's how most of you probably think. Uh, <clears throat> the Middle Ages, love is romantic, but not in marriage. 
The Reformation, this is around 500 years ago, after all, marriage might be good, even for clergy. The Puritans, we're getting into America now, Christian marriage as a spiritual companionship. So my wife is my best friend kind of stuff, you know. What about today? That's as far as the book goes. What, what, do Christi- what do we say about marriage today? What does our culture say? And as I asked around, what is most fascinating about how we would sort of answer this question if it said down here the contemporary culture or Christians today or something like that. I know those are two different things. But um, what was so fascinating to me is how our answers contradict each other. So we might say, for example, marriage is outdated. It's an old, empty tradition. But at the same time, how many of us have some sense that our happiness is just a marriage away? That we think marriage is so, it's broken, it's whatever, but we love TV shows and movies and songs that talk about lifelong commitment. One of the student interns, when I asked about the cultural view of marriage, said, and I quote, why buy the cow when you're getting the milk for free? (laughs) Yeah, those are your leaders, friends. No, um... (laughs) That wasn't actually the take. That was this person's cultural take on what they think is going on. But it, maybe it's their take. We need to talk. Okay, anyway. Um, but listen, why buy the cow when you get the milk for free? Do you see that kind of thing being taught in the culture? Do you see that kind of, that, that, that sort of uh, laissez-faire attitude about sex being presented uh, on the wind in the things that we consume and the things that we read and the stories that we tell? And I can see that, I can see that attitude, but at the same time, a lot of us treat our friendships and hobbies and even jobs and dreams as just kind of like a holding pattern or something to bide our time until we find the one. And so I can say like, dude, why buy the cow when I can have the milk for free? But like, as soon as I, as soon as this cow is willing to like hang with me, I'll ditch all my friends. I'll quit my job. I'll drop out of school. Anything for you. Cow? I don't know. That's weird. Uh, it's a weird <laughs> metaphor now. Um, but do you see the contradictions? Do you see that we're, we're people who walk with these contradictions and we, we sort of believe two things at the same time and we might roll our eyes at people talking about marriage, but then we still feel like being single is second class. The idea of marriage is incredibly complex today. It's contradictory. And I think, I think that's probably how I'd word it. If I were to sort of have another category, I would say um, sort of the modern West, marriage is complex and contradictory. I think that's what I would probably say at this point. Because there's a sense in which we actually probably have all of the previous views, but in a postmodern or post-postmodern age where we don't think any of, we, we think nothing's contradictory really, like everybody's okay to believe multiple truths that actually can't coexist at the same time. That we have actually said, well, it's, neither, it's none of those. It's whatever you want that to be. And it's all of those at the same time. And so it's, it's complex and it's contradictory for us now. And I want to try to clear some of that up tonight. And I don't know if you're going to like it. So let's pray again. Father, would you send your spirit? Oh, goodness. Send your spirit. That the words of my mouth and the meditations and thoughts of each one of our hearts would be holy and pleasing to you, and may you well up in us a desire for something greater than we've ever known. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Keely, if you would, would you put up those two verses in Genesis? This is from Genesis 1, 27 and Genesis 2, 24. And there's a reason I'm putting these together. You'll see in the next passage of Scripture. But So God created man, human, human humanity, humankind, in his own image. 
In the image of God, He created him. Male and female, He created them. Man, that's a fun verse. That second half, male and female, He created them, is, is the, this is the way the, the uh, Jewish biblical writings work, is there's like one sentence that says a thing, and the second sentence says more of a thing. And so in the first part, it says, God created man in His image. Let me tell you what I mean by that. Male and female, He created man in His image. Therefore, we're now moving over to 2, Genesis 2.24. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. This is the biblical picture of marriage before sin entered the world. Two humans, the only thing distinguishing them from each other is male and female. We are not an androgynous creation. We have been bestowed with the greatest gifts of maleness and femaleness. And when these two stand side by side in the opening story of creation, they come together and they're made one. They're glued together. The word literally means they're glued together into a new oneness with sex consummating the union. And this oneness far from, this is huge, we don't have time to get into it, but I just want to drop this real quick. Far from eradicating distinctions actually enriches them. Though they are very one, they are still very two. But what happens, so first, just hear that real quick. Really, and you'll see um, why we can argue this with such force in just a minute, but this is the biblical genesis of marriage. This story of, 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 of two becoming one, of leaving parents and, and, and cleaving together, the sort, of the, the sort of cheesy but really effective language is, is leaving, cleaving, and weaving. <laughs> uh, uh, that, that's, this is this biblical model of marriage, okay? This is, what, this is what's going on here in the story. But what happens if two people have become one, and one of those people doesn't want to be one anymore? What happens if two become one and, and one of those people says, I don't want to be one anymore? What if they just want to be two again? What if, they build, what if they want to be one with another person? I want to look at what Jesus has to say in Matthew chapter 19. I encourage you to get familiar with this text. We're going to go through it line by line because not a word is wasted by Jesus. And these verses summarize Jesus' sex ethic. Uh, or, or, or his views on marriage, divorce, and singleness, so to speak, right? So um, <coughs> I didn't include verse numbers up here, sorry, but you have, you hopefully have access to Bibles. If you don't, we have a suitcase or something. I don't know, it's like a trendy thing on Pinterest or something. There's like a suitcase with Bibles in it, and you can just take one home. You can just take one for free, because um, you should not have one. Um, okay, anyway, so first line, and you can just follow along as we got to go through it, um, or in your Bibles, or on your phones, or something like that. And the Pharisees came to him and tested him, him as Jesus, um, by asking, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause. It's a really cool thing. Jesus um, had just moved from one region to another, and he wouldn't return to that old region until after he resurrects from the grave, but he comes to this region, and it's really cool. It says that he, that all these people were following him, and he healed them, and the language, the, the Greek word actually means he therapied them, which is so cool. Um, he just, he just therapied, you just like lawyered me, you know, kind of thing, right? But therapied me. And, and then, and then nineteen three, where this starts is sort of this, here's what I mean, Matthew is saying, here's what I mean by Jesus therapied them. Jesus is doing healing work in his teaching on marriage and then on money. 
which is what he gets. We're not going to get into money tonight, but maybe we should soon. Uh, anyway, so <clears throat> um, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? And, and I want to just tell you now, I'm not going to come back to this again, but Jesus begins to do some healing work. Okay. The Pharisees, because that's who's talked about in this text, the Pharisees were the religious elite. These were the guys who followed all the rules. They felt better than everyone else because of it. They tried to make everyone else do the same. If Jesus' ministry is marked by being relaxed, the Pharisees are marked by being uptight. Jesus' frequent dealings with them should give the morally superior in this room pause. The legalists and the do-gooders and the super serious among us should pay attention and notice how he interacts with people like us in the text. And his frequent dealings with them should give us hope, too, if we are like them, because he wouldn't have engaged with them so much if he didn't have hope for them. But these are the Pharisees. These are the ones who think they got it all right. And right away, we know their motives, right? Look at the first line up here. They come to test Jesus. They come to test him with a question about divorce. They're trying to trap him, which is like a classic Pharisee move in the New Testament. And here's how they want to trap him. First, they ask about divorce, right? We know that the Hebrew community at that time was debating a lot on what are the lawful reasons for a man to divorce a woman in this hyper-patriarchal culture. Some argued that you could only divorce a woman if she's committed adultery. Others argued that if you found an other woman more attractive, you could divorce your wife. And others argued, and, and, and look, I, this, this is such a weird thing for me because there's a part of, I hope of all of us that, re, that is like, uh, feels revulsion at this. And at the same time, are you telling me you don't know stories of you or people you know that have left somebody for somebody else that they found more attractive? And how much do we just want to justify that? And so I want to point my finger at these people and say, how dare you? And I find the Spirit of God saying, check, just check yourself, man. The seed of sin has lived in you too, brother. Are you really above? I would love to believe that I'm above this. But it's worth pause at least. Others, we have records of this, friends. Others believe that if she burned your bread, if she wasn't a good cook, you could divorce her. And if Jesus, si I, well, I know stories of that, though. Um, I know stories of marriages where one of the largest points of contention is the cooking. And it's caused radical division. Radical division. And if Jesus, si so there's this debate going on. We actually literally have records of these three different rabbis who are all um, putting forth these three dominant ideas and they're all wrestling with it. And here's the deal. These, the Pharisees are testing Jesus. If Jesus sides with one of them, they, he know, they know that he'll stir up controversy. And if he denies that divorce is even allowed, if he says, no, 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 there's no reason to divorce, he's going to contradict Moses. <laughs> and so they lay a trap for him. Right? If you're angry with the way women are spoken of in that time, you have a friend in Jesus. Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? He moves forward. He answers, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Now, we've just read that, but listen how Jesus uh, says his stuff now, too. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. Jesus refuses their parameters, and he goes back to the beginning. I've said this before, and, and friends, please hear this. Genesis 1 and 2 are a goldmine. 
Understanding what's going on in those early chapters are going to help you understand the, the, the narrative of the entire scriptures far better. Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? What does Jesus say? What God has joined together, let no one separate. Is it lawful for someone to get divorced for any reason? What God has joined together, let no one separate. And so they say to him, why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce to send her away? If that's true, Jesus, if it's true that what God has joined together, let no one separate, why did Moses do that? If no one should separate what God joins, what about Deuteronomy 24? Deuteronomy 24, 1 through 4 is the only passage in the Old Testament that talks explicitly about divorce. So Jesus says, he said to them, because of your hardness of heart, how fascinating is this? Moses allowed you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning it was not so. Okay, so now listen, this is rich. First of all, Moses didn't command anything. Look at the text, right? Uh, where is it? Is it lawful? Have you not read? Where are we going up here? They said to him, why then did Moses, I, I can't get the shadow up there, in the middle, why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce? Where's my notes now that I looked? Moses didn't command anything. There we go. Uh, Moses allowed, Jesus said. Jesus takes the, the religious elite to Bible school, which totally had to frustrate them. It wasn't commanded, friends. It was allowed. And do you know why? Not because of her looks, not because of her baking, not even because of her infidelity. Do you know why Moses allowed divorce? Because of your hardness of heart. Hardness of heart. It's the great cancer of marriage. For those of us who've watched our parents divorce, maybe our parents are still married, but the fire's gone out. Can we not see this hardness of heart? Because of the hardness of heart of the people of Israel, because sin had worked its way into the hearts, into their hearts, and had made them stone, that's why Moses allowed divorce, not because of the wives, even if they had sinned, not because of the wives but because of the hardness of heart on the other side of the story. It's going to be really significant. Divorce, Jesus says, though, wasn't even in the picture in the beginning. There wasn't even an allowance for divorce in the beginning. In the beginning, it just wasn't so. Jesus comes back to that again, right? And, and he says, and I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. Now listen, Jesus says, and I say to you, this is huge language. He just corrected them by telling them that Moses didn't command a thing, and now Jesus himself commands. This is the audacity of the historical Jesus. This is what infuriates the Pharisees about him. He elevates himself above Moses, above Abraham, above David. I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. Friends, this teaching is so intense. And I want to tread carefully here because there's a lot of commentary and there's a lot of disagreements actually about the specifics of divorce. Church traditions and, and, and well-meaning Christians have all manner of very nuanced ways in which they, they interpret and, and are convicted by the teachings of Jesus and specifically his teachings here and, his, and the teachings of Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. 
But what I think is more difficult about this passage than even internal debates and nuanced conversations is the way that our culture views divorce. Divorce right now is a, it's a ready option at the outset of marriage. People, I think that's what a prenup is. Like it literally says, I think divorce is a real possibility and we're just going to guarantee in case we do get divorced. In our culture, divorce is just like breaking up with paperwork. That's not how it actually feels, friends. I remember, maybe I've said this here before, I don't know. I remember at my old church, I remember this, this woman getting up um, to do announcements and she was announcing, uh, well, I, I don't want to tell you, it'll ruin it. She says, um, she says, I had, uh, I had breast cancer X amount of years ago, and, and she went through her whole process with discovering that and the treatment for that and, and the sort of uh, life after uh, cancer was thankfully removed from her body. And she told the story, and then she said, but what's so hard for me is that I had so many more people who were willing to talk to me about cancer than people who were willing to talk to me about divorce. And so she said, I want to start this divorce care group, and I'm terrified to stand in front of you and tell you that because I feel like all of you are judging me right now that I'm divorced. And, and I sat in the balcony in the back of this church, so I love sitting in the back where I can get out easy and nobody talks to me. And um, I'm not recommending that to you. That's my sin stuff. But, but I remember sitting in the back, and I remember not thinking just, oh my gosh, my heart breaks for this woman. I remember thinking, she's right. She's right. It's, it's like, it's weird. It's this contradiction thing coming up again. Though we can say, ah, divorce, it's just like, yeah, it's, more, it's a more serious way out. Like, it's so common today. Like, look, you, don't worry about it until you get like four or five marriages deep. Nobody's actually going to say that, but there's actually, there's, there's some kind of like weird tilt or like somebody who's on their second marriage. You're like, oh, you had to take, you know, take a trial run. I get it. You know, like uh, that we, we sort of have those attitudes about it. And at the same time, in the same culture that, that sort of lazily promotes that narrative, we also look at somebody who's divorced or single. <laughs> we'll look at somebody who's divorced or single in their 30s or 40s and we wonder what's wrong with them. Why didn't somebody want to be with you? I know it's contradictory, but in their culture, much like ours, divorce was easy. People were actually debating whether I could just divorce my wife because I didn't like her cooking. And I want you to see how far Jesus is from that view. If you divorce someone and marry someone else, you sin. If you divorce someone and you marry someone else, you, you commit adultery. Unless you're the victim of sexual immorality, in which case it's still not desirable that you do that, but it is permissible. Because you see, if my wife cheats on me, God does not command me to divorce her. He says it's allowed he would hope and pray that I would stay with her, and we'll get to why. Which doesn't mean if I can't and I have to, and I have to leave, I just need to say this because it's so heavy stuff, y'all. I'm so nervous for what you guys are going to do with these things a little bit. I'm sorry. Um, this, this fire of sexual intimacy is so strong that it is the one thing God makes this exception for. And if, you, if your parents, if, if, if my wife cheated on me, which I don't like to imagine this story, um, but I suppose if I'm talking about this, I should take risks with you guys. Uh, if that happened, I would hope that I could stay with her, but I, I, I would, if, I, if I couldn't do it, if we could not repair this marriage. Specifically, there's two cases where it makes a ton of sense for me to move on if she dies or if she marries somebody else. Because if she marries somebody else, that is a marriage. 
And if one of those two things happen, then I am free to move on. Of course, my vows told me that if she dies, I can move on anyway. But, the, but, but you understand, in those cases, it's fine. But what if she doesn't marry somebody else? And there's hope out there. Though we have gotten divorced, we could actually marry again, right? And there may be hope for some kind of redemption still lingering out there. That story is, is far more common than you might expect. Couples getting divorced in the church and then hanging around and getting remarried again. It even like it's weird. Are they married again or were they never really divorced in the first place? If they, it's very confusing. It's very confusing. But if I, if I can't do it, if her infidelity makes it so hard for us to experience this oneness again, God says it's permissible for the sake of a ton of reasons. It's permissible for you to move on. And I don't actually need to feel shame for that. It's, it, when God says it's permissible, that means it's part of God's will and it's okay for me to, to, to feel okay about God's will. Do you understand? If you know somebody who, who like I, I know, I have, um, a, I have a handful of friends who've experienced infidelity in their marriages and they're still married and we champion the, the, this sort of redemptive work and it's hard. It's so hard. And, and, we, and we celebrate the fact that they're still fighting and, and it, together, like fighting for each other. They are still also fighting, probably, but they're fighting for each other. But if, if, if these friends needed to split because it just, the damage was so great and they kept wounding each other and, and trust was never going to be reestablished, by, even as it's just given as a gift, like I, I would never have biblical cause. I would never find God in my favor if I said, you know, you really should have stuck that out, sucker. That's God's like preferred will. He just said you were allowed to, not that you were commanded. Like, I don't have permission to do that. Okay, I just wanted to make that caveat real quick. If you think this is hard, by the way, this kind of language is hard, <laughs> you're on the right track. And here's why I know why. Because in the next verse, the disciples say to him, not the Pharisees, the disciples say to him, if this is the case with the man and his wife, it's just better not to marry. So, right, so the disciples who were silent at the, up till now jump in at this point and they go, whoa, 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 whoa. Do, do you see the heaviness of this? What Jesus is saying, the risks that are at stake, all of this stuff. It, it must, if this is true, Jesus, it's better not to marry. Do you see their point? If we can't leave our spouse because we're, we aren't attracted to them anymore or because we aren't happy with them or because of, or because of real big sin issues in their life, Let's say, Jesus, that my spouse stops taking care of herself, and she's, like, super selfish, and she gets mean, and, um, and, she, and, I, and, I, and she doesn't cheat on me, and so I don't have this, like, legal permission to leave. I got to stick it out. If we can't leave them and marry someone else without sinning, who wants to take that risk? Wouldn't it be better if I just stayed single? Do you see why they said that, Friends. I suspect you might not because maybe you think these aren't real characters or something. But when Jesus starts speaking about marriage and divorce, his disciples go, maybe it's better to be single. He's so emphatic that a married couple should stay together that the disciples realize that it's a huge risk to marry someone. If you've been to a wedding, you'll hear language that's, that, that speaks to this if they're doing traditional wedding vows, right? For better or what? Yeah, for richer or what? Right. Uh, it, it, I'm switching the words around, but in like what? In what and health? Yeah, sickness and health, right? And, and I forsake who? All others. If you remember the, the Genesis story, I forsake my parents for you. 
I leave my father and mother for you. My allegiance is to my spouse first. My spouse over my kids. My spouse over my friends. And once that we are one, once we have been made one in marriage, let no one separate you. That's a Look, if my wedding vow was, I vow to you that for richer and better and health, you know, as long as we're both happy, not as we both live, as long as we're both happy, you got me, girl. That's not a tough commitment, friends. But I look, I, look at my, I look at my spouse and I go, oh my goodness, I am committing my life to you whatever happens. And I don't know what's going to happen. Your interests will change. Your hormones will change. Not just on a regular basis, on like a seasonal or, or decade-long basis. Our financial situation will change. Our family dynamics will change. The culture will change around us. That over the, if my wife and I are married, we have the, 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 the great gift of being married for 50 years, it's very likely that we will have had to learn how to be married to four or five different people because of how much change will take place in each of us as we discover new things about ourselves and continue to grow and change. What in the world am I doing saying I will love you no matter what? How can I possibly commit that? Do you see the risk, friends? This is a tall order. Jesus, I thought marriage was a huge deal when I thought we were going to have to like share our stuff and I was going to have to fill out paperwork to end it. And now you're telling me that unless the other person sleeps with someone else, I can't leave them and marry someone else without sinning. I would rather be single. He doesn't stop. He says to his disciples who say, whoa, 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 it's probably better to be single. Chapter 19, verse 11, he says to them, not everyone can receive this saying but only those to whom it's given. In other words, not everyone can receive that saying, it's better to not marry. Is it better to be single, Jesus? Well, not everyone can receive that saying. Only those who, are, who it's given to them. Only those to who have been given that gift. You see, Jesus, and this is real fascinating, and some of us really need to hear this. It might be the reason you're here tonight to hear this. Jesus doesn't disagree with them when they say it's better to be single. He elevates singleness to the level of marriage, arguably higher. There's such a debate in the church and the church history about it that we've got to, we never argue whether in the church, we never argue when we're actually thinking about it and wrestling with a text. Culturally, when we're trying to win weird cultural battles and we're really afraid of things, we get into weird arguments. But when we're wrestling with the Bible over the last 2,000 years, there's no argument for singleness being less than marriage. It's only whether it's equal or greater than. Do you know that? There's actually no cultural, there's no culture in the history of the world that's elevated singleness. There's no worldview that's elevated singleness at all except for Christianity. That doesn't mean we always carry that out well. But I want you to, I'm trying to say this so you hear Jesus well here. He, he at least elevates marriage to the level, or singleness to the level of marriage with the disciples here, and he calls it a gift. How do you know that you've been given the gift? Now we come to the awkward verse. For there are eunuchs who've been so from birth. There are eunuchs who've been made eunuchs by men. There are eunuchs who've made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Let the one who's able to receive this receive it. All right, so a eunuch is a man who's had his genitals removed. That's like what, that's what it actually, that's like the, the technical definition of what that word would have meant back then. It's a really stark image, but this language isn't uh, necessarily about the physical removal of the penis. It's not actually what it's about. Although the word could mean that, and surely that also is in mind here. Um, 
but there's universal agreement on the fact that this, this is uh, extrap- using that image to extrapolate and talk about a larger kind of context. If something about the way that you've been born means you're called to singleness, if something about the way that you experience the world at the hands of others has shown you that you're called to singleness, or potentially your desire, or you yourself desire for the sake of the kingdom of heaven to be single, Jesus says any of these could, could be one of the ways that you understand the gift of singleness. How you're born, how you've lived, how you've experienced the world, and your desires. And I want you just real quickly as an aside to see the different ways how Jesus thinks you can understand giftedness. Because some of us talk about gifts, especially spiritual gifts, like they only reside in our emotions, some like emotional plane that lives within us or something. And you can only discover them through some magic test from BuzzFeed or something. Um, But listen, where you were born, your genes, your education, the time in which you live, your curiosity, your weaknesses, your relationships, your interests, your experiences, any number of those things can be gifts from God or ways in which God is gifting you. And he says that the gift of singleness can come from a variety of places. And if you have the gift of singleness, receive it. It's at least as good, if not better, than marriage. And the Apostle Paul argues that people who are single are able to devote themselves to the Lord in a way that is very unique, that people who are married cannot. And I I almost decided the end of our sermon tonight was going to be all about that, but... It leaves out divorcees and married couples too much in this conversation. So I commend to you 1 Corinthians chapter 7, or uh, I'm three weeks out, but I'd love to talk to you over coffee um, about that. That'd be really fun. Um, What I want to talk about is the main reason here why marriage, divorce, and singleness are all talked about in these ways, because there's one reason they're all talked about in these ways. If you're married, stay together and do not get divorced. And if you are single, devote yourself to the Lord. And if you have the gift of singleness, receive it. We're told all these things for the very same reason. We're going to end our time by looking at Ephesians chapter 5, verses 31 and 32. This is the Apostle Paul to a church in Ephesus. That's why it's called Ephesians. He wrote a letter to the church at Ephesus, and they're called Ephesians. Okay, Um, chapter 5, 31 and 32. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother, hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Now, it's the third time we've read it. Where's that from? Genesis, right? That's from the beginning. That's from Genesis. I told you Genesis 1 and 2 are goldmine. Those, those passages are used all over the Bible, and it helps understand the whole story. So Paul quotes Genesis, which is about this man and woman coming together in a marriage, right? Jesus looks back on that and talks about that being marriage and the oneness that exists between the two of them should never be separated. We, we already know that stuff from what we've read. And now he says this, this mystery about marriage, this mystery is profound, And I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. The Genesis passage, which is about marriage, is really about Christ and the church? A husband and wife being one is really about Christ and the church? Jesus, you not wanting, you commanding that, that people should not get divorced except for extreme reasons. Is because this is really about Christ and the church? Single people, you can devote yourself to the Lord because this is really about Christ and the church? All throughout the scriptures, God refers to his people as a bride and to himself as her husband. And while the opening pages of scripture lift up this model of marriage between two people, the whole of history ends with a marriage ceremony as well, a wedding, between God's people and himself. 
When God created the heavens and the earth, He put within it a living, breathing metaphor for the true story of the whole wide world, friends. When I officiate weddings, I often say to couples, I'll say this in front of everybody, it's very intense, that though this couple, and it's right at the beginning of the marriage ceremony, and I can feel people get nervous because they don't know where things are going to go after I say this like five sentences in, I say, though this couple pledges their lives until death, it's weird, I say the word death and I can feel the tightness, like we didn't know it was coming. Dang it, I thought I wasn't going to die. There, I say this, there is a marriage which cannot be ended by death. And that marriage, not this one, is the hope for this couple. That marriage, not this one, is the hope for everyone here. Some of you guys are at a wedding. I officiated this weekend. I say that thing every wedding. I say something very much like that at every wedding anyway. Do you know that when people use traditional wedding vows, they actually do. They pledge their lives together until death. Which means at the moment one of them dies, the marriage is over. If I die tomorrow, my wife is not married to me anymore. She's not married to me anymore. I'm dead. She's a widow. If she would like, she could maybe marry somebody else, depending on how you interpret Jesus' stuff, depending on your tradition. But she's not married to me anymore. And that marriage will not, at the moment one person dies... That marriage uh, will not have given them everything they've ever longed for by that point. It won't satisfy them completely. One of the surest ways, in fact, to train wreck a marriage is to make an idol out of your spouse. To assume that the other person is going to satisfy your deepest needs and longings. Do you know that's not why they were made? Just to satisfy you. God did not make them to do that. And as a matter of fact, if he has called you into marriage with somebody, he intends for that marriage not only to be a work of discipleship between the two of you and and collectively together, but he intends for your marriage to point to something bigger than itself, not to end with itself. God does care so deeply for two individuals involved in marriage. He cares for the children involved in that marriage. He cares for the ways in which their marriage will impact the world around them and the society around them. But he also cares about that metaphor that that walking analogy of the marriage between Christ and the church tells the true story. And here's the story that we need to know, that no matter how unattractive I am, no matter how bad my cooking is, no matter how gross I am, no matter how my past looks like, no matter what I discover about me, no matter what kind of sin exists in my life, that my spouse will not break covenant with me. That my spouse will love me no matter what. That's what I need to know. That's what God wants every one of us to know, that we cannot out His grace. Is there any reason for God to divorce us? No. The sexual immorality thing, though. God, this is so complicated. This, this, is why I, 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 uh, this is my own commentary on this, friends. But I think Jesus makes an exception for this in the metaphor because it's an exception in the real thing too. That if I go and make myself one with any other God, what does it mean for God then to, to remain one with me except, this is last week. <laughs> this is last week if you remember the text out of 1 Corinthians. That, that, that Paul was, was aghast that a Christian would have sex with a prostitute 
And the reason why he was so aghast at that is because you're taking the oneness that you share with the body of Christ and now you're going into a prostitute and, and you're trying to bind together the prostitute and the church. You are the common denominator there. You have been wed to them both now, and that is revolting. Don't do that. In a similar way, if, if God will run and run and run, but if I say, God, I would rather become one with anything else but you. By God continuing to stay one with me, he weds himself to that thing as well. Now, I, now that, that's really like abstract and like philosophical kind of language. There's a more practical way of understanding how it plays out in my life. The experience that we often have when we chase after other idols, and, and it's called an adultery-like kind of relationship. If you read through the Bible, that's the way we're talked about when we chase after idols. Um, in the Old Testament, uh, God's people, again, all the criticism is leveraged at God's people, not outsiders, by the way, in the Old Testament. It's all about God's people. They whore themselves after other idols. And my experience, and the experience of the church too, is that when God um, removes his hand from us, and allows us to see that these other gods that we're following, these other things that we wed ourselves to, are not good. They take our life. They don't give us life. We actually need to see that in order that we leave them. We need to see the consequences of some of our sin in order that we turn back to Him. I suspect that that has something to do with this. But let me, let me circle back if I can real quick. What we need to know what we need to know, friends, is that we cannot out God. And this whole turn on adultery is a bit silly because the way the Scriptures talk about God's people is that He found them in the midst of their adulterous relationship and He woos them back to Himself. Which makes this whole conversation really squirrely for me. Because is there really anything that I can do to be separated from the love of God that's in Christ Jesus my Lord? I don't think so. No. No. And God wants the walking metaphors about that truth to play that out. Because, I mean, to a person, when I talk to people, we all struggle to believe God loves us. There is a unique way in which people who have grown up with divorced parents really struggle to believe that. And I don't think that's accidental. I think God is fighting for his married couples all over the world to stay married because it's a testament. Listen, if you're single tonight and you don't want to be, I want you to know that everything good enjoyed by every romantic couple who has ever lived is nothing compared to what's held out for you still in your life with the church married to the groom. Your desires may not be filled right now. I don't, I, I, I hope actually they're not. I hope you recognize your desires enough to know that you want more. Your desires are not intended to be filled right now. Your desires are intended to move you forward and keep you from settling for anything less, friends. And I hope that even when you hear about really strong images of marriage and like warnings about marriage and people saying, I don't know if I want to get married, that it makes you realize I don't want to settle for less. If you, um, if you feel called to be single, some of you might in this room, I spent about seven years thinking that I might be called to be single for the rest of my life, and I don't think that was just a defense mechanism. I think some of us do that, where it's like, maybe I'm called to be single because I can't get a date, <laughs> you know, uh, and that, that's the sort of thing. Um, most Christian theologians and commentators will actually argue that the call to being single, as they've seen it teased out in people's lives, is not this like back and forth thing. It's something that people tend to know, 
um, and begin to discover. Some of us might need to help our friends discover this if it is the case. It's usually pretty rare. Uh, I think statistically something like 80% of us will probably get married throughout our life. That's I mean, only one-fifth of us might not, and that's a pretty low number. For some of you that want to get married, that's a terrifying statistic because you probably feel like you are destined for the 20% or something. But, um, um, but listen, if you feel called to be single, please receive that as a gift. And trust in the end that you will miss out on nothing. On nothing. In the meantime, steward your gift in your discipleship to our Lord. And please help the world see what you can do as a single person. The ways in which you can devote yourself to God's work in the world as somebody who's not married. If you want to get married really, really bad, <laughs> um, I, I, not you that are called to be single, you should probably fight the desire to get married if you feel called to be single. Um, but listen, if you really want to get married and you're in this room, I want you to know that wanting to get married is a really, really good desire. God that, that has implanted that in most of us. We all have one or the other, a desire to get married or, or a call to be single. God created marriage for a whole mess of goods and not the least of which is to help the world believe in the love of God. And so, friends, I want to caution you who really want to get married against making an idol out of marriage because there's no other man or woman who's going to satisfy you. None. A call to get married is a call to discipleship. It's a call to work. It's a call, like, uh, many Christians over the years have talked about it as, like, we are already um, yoked to Jesus Christ. We, are, we already come under his yoke and work alongside him, and as a married couple, we add another yoke together. And this marriage will end. My wife, my wife and I are brother and sister in the Lord, and when one of us dies, we will continue to be that, although our marriage will end. It serves for a time and a place and for a purpose. And we can enjoy each other deeply as friends, and we can remain friends and brother and sister on into eternity. But our marriage is just till death. It's not that long. So let's get on with it. Let's do something great with it. And let's figure out what God has to teach us and show others and the world through us. Do you see? When I officiate weddings, I always have this nervousness because I remember uh, being in so many weddings, which seemed like hollow relics to me, because uh, between my two parents, there have been nine marriages. There have been nine marriages. And I remember standing in weddings where I didn't believe a thing was happening. And I was participating in the wedding, and I thought, this whole thing's a joke. I've seen this before. What am I doing here? They don't even ask me if I could raise my hand and protest anymore. Dang it. You know, kind of thing. It would have been weird because it was like my mom or my dad, but, but it's, it's, it's really, it was really, really tough. And I remember having that experience so much, and I remember, um, I remember sitting in front of my, my in-laws when I asked for their permission to marry their daughter, and they looked at me and they said, how can we, this is the only question her dad asked me, actually, and it was, golly, I wanted to punch him. He said, uh, her, she talked the whole time, and then he talked, and he said, um, Jason, I just got to ask you one question. Given how much divorce exists in your family, how can we know that you mean commitment? And I wanted to punch him mostly because it's a really good question. Not, not because I mean, can you, look, you know what I want to say? It's what everybody wants to say. Those are my parents, man. They aren't me. But are you telling me that I haven't been trained by my parents? Are you telling me that the world I see doesn't impact me and, 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 and change the way that I live and think about things? Thank God I spent years studying other marriages. <laughs> Thank God. I'm so thankful for the older married couples that let me spend time with them as a third wheel, fifth wheel, eighth wheel, something. 
I guess eight wheel balances out things. I don't know, but <laughs> I'm so thankful for them. I'm truly friends. It's one of the reasons I actually moved to Chattanooga because the guy that was my predecessor here, I, I got to catch a glimpse of his marriage and I wanted to study under it. I wanted to learn what it looked like for couples to actually love each other, not in these weird romantic movie ways, but in ways that didn't end in divorce because somebody didn't like cooking, you know? And so anyway, I was there and I told them, you aren't going to know until our marriage outlasts your death. You're not going to know. Like I, I told them, I said, I've studied other married couples and I know what Jesus is calling me to and there is no reason that I will ever divorce your daughter. And I said, sir, if she cheats on me, I'll stay with her. No matter what she does, I'll stay with her. If she beats me, I may, I may, I, I may have to put her in a place uh, to keep me, I'm serious, to keep me safe from her. There are times that we might, I had this conversation with my father-in-law. It was really interesting and weird, but I needed him to know that I've actually thought about this and dodging it or getting defensive or skirting it wasn't going to do, right? And so I said, look, if there are, I don't foresee any of this. If I actually foresaw it at the beginning, I probably wouldn't marry her. You know, like we're signing up for this together because we actually are excited about this partnership together. Uh, great. But there are things we don't foresee. And if things get so bad that we have got to be separated for a time to figure things out, like one of us has to be safe from the other, or we've got to invite the whole church to gather around us, we can only meet in their presence. I'll, I will never leave your daughter, sir. Ever. And I realize that I'm ignorant right now. I realize that I don't know what that means, and I can only say with my words and my intentions. And so I would please pray for me and her. And I got that idea because I read the Bible. And I couldn't look at my parents and the culture and look at what marriage looks like out there. And so I look at godly couples and I look at the Bible and I go, well, why would I marry this girl if I have contingency plans? Why would I marry her if I think if she does? If I, Anna, I love you and I want to stay married to you for the rest of my life. But I just want you to know if you cheat on me, I'm out. If I got to say that, don't. I have permission by God to do it if it comes to, down to it, but why would I sign up for it if I'm already out, one foot out the door? Do you see? So I, I had this experience in my past. So when I do these wedding ceremonies, I often try to like bring some serious sobriety into the middle of the ceremony. I don't know if some of you were at this wedding I did last weekend, and I'm always curious to know if people are like, dang, dude, why do you say like things like you guys are not enough for each other? Like, why do you say that in the middle? Everybody just wants to be happy for this moment. And this strange thing happens at every wedding ceremony I do. Every single one, some married couple, at least one married couple that's been married 30 years comes up to me and they go, thank you. And it's always an old married couple that's like weathered a storm and they say, thank you. And they tell me, like, truly, I mean, they, they, I, this, this last one, it was two couples in particular, and one of them was like, you know, I was in the car with Heather, and she was telling me what you were telling her in premarital counseling, and I was like, I'm sorry. And she goes, no, 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 don't be sorry, because I'm thinking back to all the hard things I said. She's like, people don't say that to young couples today, and they're not prepared. And she's saying this right next to her husband. He knows what she's talking about. I don't know what she's talking about. He does. You know what I mean? Like, they know. But here's what I find so fascinating. I, I, take, I take a lot of comfort in the fact that these couples that have actually weathered some storms are telling me that's what I needed to hear. I need to hear somebody say the truth about marriage, which isn't, your guys' love is so great, you can ride it off into the sunset. You're always going to love the exact same music at the same time. It's going to be fantastic. You both like hiking? Oh my gosh, you should get married. Like, I don't say those things. Because that's not what makes a marriage last, friends. Those are friends. That's not a spouse. Like you can also go hiking with your spouse, okay? But anyway, there's also something else that happens with these older couples. 
I see in them, and I encourage you to get to know somebody that's been married for 30 or 40 years just to have this experience. Find somebody that's been married 30 or 40 years, and I want you to see a fire in their eye because they are hungrier than they've ever been. Because I see these older couples, and they're like, thank you for being honest, and they talk about their love for each other, but I see that really what's happened is they've been married for 30 years or 40 years or 50 years. This couple this weekend was 52 years. 52 years, you know? And then the way they look at each other and look at me, it's like they have learned that they are unwilling to satisfy their appetites with anything less than what God has in store. Because they've tried in a bunch of other ways and thank God this person stuck with them because if that person didn't stick with them, they probably would have thought if I just married somebody else, then maybe I wouldn't need God. And so it's interesting because they're like so satisfied, but at the same time, they're hungrier than I've ever seen them. Do you see that dynamic I'm talking about? It's really, really interesting. Kings of old would give their sons toy swords and toy crowns. We'll end with this. They give their sons toy swords and toy crowns. And their hope was that in playing with the toys that they would be preparing one day to draw a real sword and wear, wear, wear a real crown. Modern versions of this in the 80s were like, let my daughter play house. <laughs> now it's let my son play house, let my daughter play Legos or whatever. But, you know, whatever. Uh, but we do these things uh, to, to prepare them to take on the real things later. You see? God gives us marriage to prepare us for the real thing. Which is why every married couple who struggles with this appointment of marriage, I don't know, I said, has, oh, has hope. It says hook, but I don't know why it says hook. Because what I'm experiencing right now is preparing me for something greater, that even when I struggle in my marriage, when I'm frustrated with it, I have hope. When every divorced couple, or every divorced individual, actually, I should say, has hope, or can have hope that they haven't messed up the real thing. They've only messed up a toy. Now, it's somebody else's life, so the metaphor breaks down. But there's hope for redemption. That's why everyone who's single has hope that they won't miss out on the real thing. Because the marriage that my wife and I have are like a wooden sword and a, and a toy crown for the real thing. It's why if you don't get to play with the toy sword and the, and the toy crown, don't worry, you'll get a sword and a crown one day. If you messed up the one before, don't worry, but God has kept safe your inheritance. And He's going to give it to you because it's His good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Marriage, divorce, and singleness are all ultimately in the end about Jesus Christ and the church. The Spirit and the bride say, come. The Lord God Himself can wash you clean and bring you beautifully to the throne to share in a marriage which will not end. And I hope that the truth of that, as you hear it, as you read the scriptures, as you pray, as you hang with the people of God, as you go to weddings, as you live out your romances with your friends in the church, I hope that this, this, this hunger for the real thing grows. I hope it's not satisfied. I hope your hunger grows. In your marriages, in your broken romances, in your singleness, I hope that you learn to want something so much greater and that you're willing to take on any of these things as God calls you to in order for your hunger to go for the better thing. Not because any of these other things are going to satisfy it. Not because if you're in a romance, being single would make you happy. Not because if you're single, being in a dating relationship or married would make you happy. It won't, friends. God has created you for something so much more than anybody else in this room can satisfy. Let's pray. Spirit of God, oh Lord, um, 
the amount of stories in this room surrounding marriage and divorce are plentiful and probably messy. Um, and Lord, we need, everybody here needs more than words. We need more than metaphors. Lord, I, I, I lament right now the, the, the way in which romance and sex and love are commodified in our culture, the way in which so many of us have experienced brokenness in, with uh, sin as it relates to specifically sexual intimacy. And Lord, what we, we need to believe uh, is what you promise, and that's that our inheritance is kept safe. That even though uh, in human marriages you make it permissible for somebody to leave because of adultery, that in your marriage to your people you won't leave them even because of it. That just in every way, God, you surpass our expectations. In every way, you set yourself apart from anything else the world has to offer. I'm mindful of that right now, God, and yet I know so many of us struggle to believe that. And it's not for no reason, God, because of the ways in which we've been wounded, because of the ways in which we practice life, because of the voices that are surrounding us, we struggle to believe that. And so we need you to do a mighty work in helping us to believe that you can actually deliver on your promises. Help us to, in light of that, help us to resist settling for lesser things. Help us to resist making idols out of each other in this room as if everybody here is just made for me. Or me for them. That's not the truth of the world. Lord, in this room, in this very room and amongst this generation, I pray that you would raise up rich 50-year marriages. I pray that there be people in this room that are called to singleness, that are able to devote themselves to such rich work that it blesses an entire generation. I pray that the gospel is proclaimed every time we decide to stay when we could leave. Lord, as we come to this table in just a moment, I pray that even the, the reenacting together of this night that you were betrayed by people who whore themselves after other things, like all of us in this room. That you, you step down from the seat of honor and you wash the feet of your friends on your knees. That you give yourself to them. You lay down your life for them. And even when they run from you after you do your hardest work for them, for us, and they run from you, you pursue them still. Again and again, God, if a million chances would do, you'd give them. And so give them still. Renew hope in us when we gather. Bind us together in, in oneness because we, the people of God, will, will enjoy a relationship with you on into eternity is the real marriage. And so teach us how to, teach us how to see that touchdown now. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven right now. 
Even as we spend a couple weeks apart because of spring break and stuff, renew us, renew our hope, bind us together in oneness with your church throughout the world and throughout history. And teach us not to settle for anything less than what you have in store for us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.